Before we engage this evening's subject matter, I wanted to uh, formally invite all of you listeners out there, if you are uh, within range of the Diocese of Santa Rosa, to come this Saturday to, I think, a pretty important event, a day put together by the Department of Religious Education within the Diocese of Santa Rosa, a day where we are uh, going to be given the opportunity to reflect more deeply into uh, this call that we have to forgive one another. Um, I've pulled up a letter written by the bishop there in Santa Rosa, Bishop Vasa, and so what I thought I would do is just um, read this brief letter. This is what he has to say. Uh, Dear Congress participants, we warmly welcome you with joy to the annual Santa Rosa Religious Education Congress. This is a day to assist those involved with the handing on of the Catholic faith at all levels. The theme of this year's Congress is Nourishing the Gift of Forgiveness. In Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, the compassionate father of the prodigal son celebrates his lost son's return. He ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him, and celebrated with a great feast. Our Heavenly Father embraces us whenever we return to Him in love. The divine mercy of God is lived out in our lives, especially in the sacrament of reconciliation. Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on the apostles. He said, Receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. This Congress is a great opportunity to not only nourish your faith and understanding of this sacrament, but also to take advantage of the gift of confession available throughout the day. We welcome speakers from our own diocese as well as other dioceses such as Douglas Bushman, Hector Molina, Father Gary Thomas, and uh, the world-renowned Dr. Ray Garendi, and others. May Mary, the Mother of Mercy, always keep you and yours close to the heart of her Son. And penned Bishop Vaza, as well as the Director of Religious Education there, Deacon Dennis Purification. So, there you have it. Uh, this Saturday uh, at Cardinal Newman High School from 8 to 5, a wonderful opportunity to kind of go on a, a retreat day. Uh, so please do take advantage of that. Um, yours truly will be there as well, uh, presenting a few workshops. So um, don't miss this opportunity. For more information, you can go to SantaRosaCatholic.org. So with that, let us open up with a word of prayer. Let us begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It's great to be with you another Friday evening, reflecting into the richness of our faith. Uh, This Sunday, we have the opportunity to reflect into the parable of the wicked tenants. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, which affords us the opportunity to really get into uh, this rich imagery that Jesus plays with as it relates to the Old Testament. Uh, We have to remember when we talk about the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we are talking about an author who is writing to an audience that is well-versed in the Old Testament, that Palestinian Christian Jewish audience. So um, it is good to be reminded of this as we go through this uh, Gospel during this season. So this evening I am flying solo, so if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to email, email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and just 
hit the contact link there and it'll pull up an email and you can send it on on your way. So uh, again, I always welcome questions. I'm just not pertinent to the subject matter being discussed on the radio, but any questions about the Catholic faith, any comments or observations you may have as well, I, I welcome all conversations. I welcome all dialogues, um, wherever you may be. I know we have an international listening audience, so um, if you're in Brazil, uh, the Czech Republic, Italy, Spain, um, Belgium, wherever you might be, I, I welcome uh, the conversation and, and the questions. So with that, if you do have your Bibles out there, go ahead and go to Matthew 21, verses uh, 33 to 41, and I'll get us going with this gospel. The parable of the wicked tenants. Hear another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Amen. So what can we say? Well, let us be reminded again. You can begin to imagine when you listen closely to that parable, the rich allegorical image. Now, Matthew is frequently uh, quoting Old Testament passages to establish Jesus' credential as the Messiah. So Jesus and Matthew are often alluding to the Old Testament in subtle ways by drawing comparisons between ancient persons, places, and events, and Jesus himself, right? So this form of interpretation is what we call typology, and you've heard me use this word quite a bit, a word that in its Greek, typus, literally translates as pattern, okay, or, or impression. Now, this is why we use the word typewriter. Well, what, what is a typewriter? A typewriter back in the day was what we used to type papers, right? And how did the typewriter function? Well, a steel letter would strike the canvas and leave an impression, right? It would leave a pattern. And this is what you have in the Old Testament. Men and women leaving an impression, a pattern that points to Jesus Christ. And I say women because we also have women in the Old Testament leaving impressions that point to Mary. But certainly in the Old Testament, uh, the major figures, patriarchs, they are shadowy figures of Christ in many ways. So Matthew in his gospel uh, goes to this imagery quite a bit. And so what we call this is a typological reading of the Old Testament. And it is entuned in this sense to distinctive rhymes in salvation history where God acts in similar, or we can say typical ways each time he reveals himself and delivers his people. So the Father teaches us about himself 
through the use of things and events long familiar in the minds of his people. In short, he uses old truths to instruct us about new ones. Now, why do I talk about this? Well, in light of what we just read from Matthew 21, verses 33 to 41, we have a rich allegory. And this is the stuff of typology, right? I mean, if you were to follow it closely and you can pick up any commentary, and I'm now looking at a commentary, the Ignatius commentary, the parable of the wicked tenants is an allegory in all of its details. The householder, of course, is God in verse 33. The vineyard is Jerusalem in verse 33. The tenants are Israel's leaders, while the servants are the Old Testament prophets persecuted for warning Israel of its sins. The son, of course, is who? But Jesus, who will be thrown out of the vineyard. And what is the vineyard? Jerusalem and crucified outside the city. And because of the wickedness of the tenants, God will put them to what did verse 41 say? Death, when he judges Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he will entrust the new covenant kingdom to other tenants in the church. And this is what we see the gospel of Matthew develop. And so I spend time off the top talking about typology, talking about allegory, and really getting into uh, the richness of the allegory in light of this, because I would be remiss if we didn't talk about this. I, I feel that as we've been taking up the gospel of Matthew, we have not been doing this enough. So something to be thinking about. Christ is showing us how he is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, and that he identifies all of the key players, all of the key things in the Old Testament in of himself and the church that he has come to establish. So, that being said, what more can we say about our parable? Well, our parable is lengthy and we can say uh, quite intricate and for a good reason. In symbolic language, as we have just talked about, it contains in many ways the whole history of human salvation. It first looks backward to the election and formation of Israel by God and to the long line of prophets he sent to his people, culminating in the sending of his own son at the incarnation. It portrays graphically the long history of the brutal rejection of the prophets by the leaders of Israel. And it then looks forward from this present moment of Jesus' life to his passion and death at the hands of his own people with the final triumph of the resurrection as God's ultimate saving deed that brings new life out of death. So as we talk about this parable as an allegory, the allegory, and remember what an allegory is um, defined definitively, the description of one thing under the image of another, it is an allegory of salvation history, right? So for all of that, we are not here dealing with an ordinary parable and stealing some point of moral or religious instruction. Last week, Debbie Rosales was with me, and we were talking about the parable of the two sons. And even in that case, Debbie talked about the allegory, or we can also say the analogy between the two sons. Son one being the, the tax collector and prostitute, and son two, and son two being uh, the Pharisee. Again, we have this going on here, but there's something different in this parable. What we have before us 
is a transparent allegory of the concrete ways in which God has intervened in our history to save us, making us heirs of his kingdom along with his son, our Lord. So um, important stuff here. Now, surely we may describe the Savior's intentions in pursuing Israel's leaders with the words spoken by the Lord through what prophet? But the prophet Jeremiah in the darkest days of the people's rebellion against his supremacy over them. If you're going to go to Jeremiah 32, verses 40 to 41, what do we read? I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Now, what is Jeremiah talking about here? I will put fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. To induce a kind of salutary fear in hearts, where arrogance presently reigns in order to precipitate a conversion that eventually makes delight possible between God as lover and Israel as beloved. This, we can say, is our Lord's intention with the leaders of Israel as it is with every sinner. In fact, the very form of the parable, no matter how damning in content, we could also say already contains a promise of rich hope. For through the skillful use of words and images, the parables coming from the Lord's lips seek to kind of hold up a mirror, if you will, of recognition that will exercise, E-X-O-R-C-I-Z-E, right? Exercise from the soul of his listeners, the dark forces of destruction. Of course, as we've talked about so much, provided the soul bows its head humbly to the truths of the one who speaks them. This is always the disposition that we must seek. The disposition of the Anawim, the disposition of the poor in God, the disposition of those who are on bended knee. Remember the Hebrew word, and a weem that speaks of God's poor ones in the Old Testament literally translates bent over. It's, it's a humble disposition. It's a disposition of surrender. As we talk about this parable, I also think it is important that we not become so fixated on the correct interpretation of a given parable that we lose sight of the dramatic situation within which the parable is being communicated by Jesus. At the conclusion of our last section, Jesus says what to the obstinate leaders? Even when you saw sinners believing the Baptist, you did not afterward repent and believe him. And then he immediately launches into the parable we're talking about now. The typical situation out of which the parables are spoken, no matter how grim their literal thrust dramatizes God in Jesus always and everywhere pursuing our rebellious hearts with forceful divine rhetoric so that we will be persuaded to turn back to him freely. You know, we must say that the arrogant Pharisees here and the religious class in general confront divine grace as a very special kind of sinner. I mean, their specific problem is what? But their inability to see themselves as sinners in the first place or as in need of divine grace, right? I mean, we have talked about how in today's age, 
the great problem is, is not that we don't understand where Satan works, how Satan works. We have to first believe that Satan exists. You know, what's interesting is we are talking about this now. I'm reminded of Pope Francis. You know, Pope Francis has spent a great deal of time talking about the existence of the devil. It's quite provocative in the truest sense of the word. It really challenges us. You know, the drive-by media, the secular media, reports a lot of things about what Pope Francis is saying and doing, and they not dare report this. I tell you what, it's everywhere, everywhere he goes. And he, he just said it the other day again. He was talking about Satan prowling like a roaring lion, right? That, that vision that is given to us from the epistles. Satan is prowling like a roaring lion. He's very present. And why has he put such an emphasis on this? Not that we can't understand the devil, but that we don't believe the devil exists. When we think about the devil, we think about a Halloween costume. A pitchfork and two horns, right? No, that's, that's silliness. We don't actually believe he exists. It's quite interesting. So, as we talk about this, we are made to think how this relates to uh, the Pharisees, huh? They don't think they need Christ because of what they already believe. They really do not experience, that is the Pharisees, the need for a Savior because, what? They consider themselves already justified, and saved by their strict religious observances and moral efforts. But of course, this is what he condemned last week, right? In last week's uh, gospel, in last week's parable, the parable of the say what you mean, mean what you say. Huh? Are we more concerned about what we say or what we do? Are we more concerned about our appearance or reality? Are we more concerned about the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? The spirit of the law illuminates the letter of the law. So, Jesus does not give up on the Pharisees. He pursues, just not the Pharisees, but all those who are Pharisaic. You and I, there's a Pharisee within all of us. <laughs> With the piercing rhetoric of grace, pounding at the door of their conscience with one parable after another, his eternal hope never losing patience for their conversion. Did you not catch his opening line, hear another parable? As Mary Caucus notes, and I'm reflecting here with you, with Mary Caucus, he's, you know, he, says, uh, he says, every time he says to them, hear another parable, he seems to be implying, yet again, I will draw from the treasury of wisdom my father has entrusted to me and hurl another dart of love at your hearts. And who knows, perhaps this time you will feel the pain of my absence and respond to my approach with a greening hope of your own. Hear another parable. Listen to my wisdom. Let the truth that is inherent in the wisdom incarnate pierce your heart. He is relentless. He is persistent because he is the essence of love. We have talked before in the past about the importance of Christ asking a question. Okay, and how a question provokes the heart how a question encourages a more personal encounter, okay? As we have noted in the past, and I think we did last week, our Lord receives over 300 questions, and he answers a question with a question over 300 times. He just answered the question with an answer only three times. He asks questions up to 183 times. Well, within this parable, he asks a question. Last week, he led with a question. This week, he asks a question within the parable. And what is that question? 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This is a question that sums up the entire sweep of the narrative and projects it forward to the end time. Of course, the question itself, as I've already noted in the opening, refers to the great day of harvest, huh? The judgment at the end of history when the Lord will return visibly to his vineyard, his world, looking for the ripe fruit that he has intended it to bear from the beginning of creation. By asking the question, we are made to take ownership of the parable. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? His question makes us think critically about who we are before God. And that piercing line that comes to us, what is it? Verse 38, they will respect my son. They will respect my son. Do what you will now, but you will respect my son. How can we not think of the Eucharist here? I was reading a reflection from Father Cantal Mesa, and he talks about this. I was struck by that because uh, as I was reading this, I, I thought about the same thing. They will respect my son. How do we respect our Lord today? How do we reverence our Lord today? As Christians and as Catholics, I think we need to be thinking about the Eucharist in this context. Do we respect our Lord? Do we reverence our Lord? And if we do so, how? We need to be thinking about this truth, that line, with great clarity. You know, there's a, an important passage, I think, as we are talking about this. I'm flipping now to 1 Corinthians 11. If you have your Bibles out there, 1 Corinthians 11. Let's see here. Verses, uh, I'll start with 23. 23 through, I'll go to 32. So 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 32. And this is where Paul gets into the institution of the Eucharist. Okay. And this is what I thought of in my own reflection as, as I heard those words, they will respect my son. We are given an opportunity today to respect our Lord. So let us read these series of verses and then I'll elaborate. This is Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. By the way, delivered to you, the tradere, to hand on, the sacred tradition. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharisteros, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the chalice, after supper, saying, This chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's an eschatological quality to this verse and these series of verses. And say that five times fast. Eschatological. That's, that's simply a word that means end times or what points to the end. So you can begin to see the importance of why and what the Eucharist has to do with the end. And why I personally was thinking about this. Verse 27 continues, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without 
discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Paul goes on. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. What is our Lord saying here? That unworthy manner? To receive the Eucharistic communion can be an act of sacrilege and self-condemnation if we are in a state of mortal sin. And certainly, Paul is writing this to the church of Corinth, and obviously this is what was going on. And the body and blood of our Lord was being taken for granted. There was an absence of discernment. And it is a great challenge, my dear friends, for all of us to make sure that we are discerning what we are receiving, that we respect our Lord in the poverty, the great sacrament of poverty in the Eucharist. How important is this? And when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The Lord has entrusted us with a great gift in the Eucharist. And we again are called to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we do so just not with what we say, but moreover with what we do. Now, for those of you who have been listening to our Tuesday evening program, where we have been focusing on the great ancient Christian thinkers and church fathers, you know that we have been focusing in on this reality, this truth of martyrdom, this truth of proclaiming the Lord's death with every act, with every yes. Huh? What were Tertullian's words? The blood of the martyrs is the effective Christian seed, huh? Are also understood as the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What we have come to see then and what we are made to see now, ultimately, is that we are called to share in the redemptive mission of Christ. If Christ's crucifixion transformed history, when we receive the Eucharist, and going back to Paul's words and the institution of the Eucharist, if we enter into the deeper truth of that, we share in that transformation of history because what happens when we, when we receive the Eucharist in a worthy manner, we are empowered in Christ crucified so as to share the love of Christ crucified with the world. This, my friends, was the quintessential truth in the first 300 years of the church and is the same for us today. And this particular parable has us asking a question that has us thinking about the great day of harvest where he will gather his flock, where he will identify his good fruit. And his good fruit are those who were steeped in a relationship with Jesus Christ and most especially in the, in the Eucharist. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.